Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. Episode 268, The Search for Jimmy Hoffa, from UFOs to Psychics uh, to the new movie The Irishman. Wendy, how you feeling this morning? I'm feeling great, Mike. Thanks. How are you? I'm a little tired after uh, <laughs> you've been in the van for eight hours yesterday on the way back from Louisville, Kentucky. Yeah, yeah. We spent a lot of time in the van this weekend, but we also spent a lot of time at the Imaginarium convention. Absolutely. That was super fun. That was our first time uh, crashing the Imaginarium convention. Uh, full it of was. science fiction authors, fantasy authors. It was really cool to meet so many creative people. Definitely. And we got to try something a little bit different. We kind of had our own little um, storytelling session where we talked about some of the songs from the podcast. That's right. It was like VH1 storytellers, except we weren't washed up. Uh, um, <laughs> hopefully not. So, anyway. no, <laughs> right. Hopefully not yet. <laughs> right. Because if I've peaked already, this is I'm going to be really sad. But yes, we met a lot of great people. And uh, if you're listening to this for the first time, because you saw us either at our storytelling performance or one of the panels that we were in. Hello, and thank you for subscribing. Yes, it's really nice to meet you. And we did have a good time talking to everybody about all the cool books that people were putting out, uh, fantastical ideas. I think I got at least three or four new podcast ideas from talking to people this weekend. Oh, isn't that the best? Yeah. I mean, it's fantastic. Yeah, because a lot of people were basing some of their fiction books on like real life paranormal stories. And they kind of take that, they adjust that a little bit, and then they developed a novel out of it. And so it was interesting to hear um, when people would talk about, like, oh, I I heard this ghost story when I was a kid, and now I can make a, you know, book out of it. Okay. Well, we want to hear about the real life thing and then probably check out the book. Exactly. Yeah. There was a lot of Googling done on our drive home last night (laughs) of things people had told us about hauntings and different stories and uh, legends from their own home areas. And there were people from all over the place. So it was a real nice variety of stories there. Absolutely. The other thing, too, is meeting so many interesting people from the South. I always like that because it's a region um, I'm not that well traveled in. Um, You know, I spent a lot of time like you spent a lot of time going through the South, like on the way to Florida as a kid. But it hasn't been until we've been adults and going there with our band that I got to spend more time there and meet people. So it's a whole new world of legends to get introduced to. It is. And also, Mike, you got to meet one of our Patreons in person for the first time. That's right. Chuck Martin, uh, fantastic Patreon. He's always got cool ideas for the podcast. And um, it was a real pleasure actually like meeting someone in meet space. So we want to thank our Patreon member, Chuck, for coming out to the conference and hanging out with us. And we also want to thank Stephen and Holly from Imaginarium and Scott Marcus, who interviewed us during our show on Friday night. Right. Yeah, now, you, know, you guys made it a really good time. So uh, thanks for all the fun, all the new people. Thanks for listening. And let's start talking about weird stuff. Wendy, uh, when you think about Jimmy Hoffa, what do you think of? I really just think of a mystery that's right. talked about all the time <laughs> and his disappearance, basically. And in fact, I didn't know very much about him at all. Uh, I guess I'm a little uneducated, but I had to dig in and do some reading in preparation for this episode because I realized that I didn't know that much about the guy other than his disappearance. Right. Uh, I think about the movie with Jack Nicholson as Jimmy Hoffa, uh, directed by Danny DeVito. Ah, okay. That came out uh, oh, 20 some years ago because my parents went to the Milwaukee premiere of it. And so they came back with some tchotchkes from the premiere. And so I wore the button that said, like, I'm a friend of Jimmy Hoffa or whatever. I had a picture of Jack Nicholson <laughs> dressed up as Jimmy Hoffa. And I wore that button on my jean jacket for a few cool. weeks when we came out. <laughs> it was just one of those ridiculous That's things. That's um, awesome. When that movie came out. It, you know, it also makes me think of just the turmoil of the 1960s. And when you think about when we have conspiracies and we have... Uh, like government shakeups and things like that now, they they don't seem quite as deadly as they did in the 1960s. Yeah. Because, you know, this idea, because like Jimmy Hoffa is implicated in 
organized crime and the assassination of, of John F. Kennedy. And so I remember hearing about that as a kid. And you just think like the 1960s, people are getting, you know, like presidents are getting assassinated. We're in the war. People dis, like are disappeared and never seen again kind of oh, thing. Gosh. It just, it seems like a more dangerous time to be alive. <laughs> really yeah, that's true. So when I think about Jimmy Hoffa, that's the kind of thing I think about <laughs> um, in that like, like what was going on back then? Like this is just in our parents' lifetimes and people were doing crazy stuff to each other. So let's talk a little bit today. We want to give you guys a little bit of information about Jimmy Hoffa because chances are you're going to go see that new Martin Scorsese film that comes out uh, November 1st, uh, The Irishman. And people are going to see it because it's Robert De Niro and who plays actually Jimmy Hoffa is going to be Al Pacino and then Joe Pesci is in it too. And Joe Pesci hasn't been in anything forever. So what it's going to do is it, uh, it reunites Al Pacino and Robert De Niro, who you know, most famously were in Heat together uh, as you know, diametrically opposed forces. And then it brings back Joe Pesci, who him and Robert De Niro and Martin Scorsese made Goodfellas, which people think is the greatest gangster movie of all time. <laughs> right. And I, you know, I, I love that movie too. And so... It's going to be a huge hit, but the thing is, I believe it's going to Netflix after it's in the theater for a couple of days, or maybe a couple of weeks, whatever, and it's going to go right to Netflix, so everybody's going to get a chance to watch it without even having to go to the movie theater. Oh, cool. So this is kind of, from the reviews, I do not think they've had the paranormal aspects of Jimmy Hoffa's disappearance, so this episode is going to help you become more familiar with the, with the man, Jimmy Hoffa, as well as um, the different theories of what happened to him after uh, he disappeared. So I uh, just wanted to get into that because this new flick's coming out and this is one of those things where like he's the butt of a joke all the time. Uh-huh. You know, people say like, oh, he ends up with Jimmy Hoffa or whatever because he's just someone who in the modern era, I mean, a famous person who uh, was in the, you know, in the middle of the week or whatever was just never seen again disappeared on July 30th, 1975. He was uh, 62 years old, born on Valentine's Day on uh, yeah. 1913. So Valentine's Day, baby. Um, <laughs> and he was born in Brazil, Indiana, which I have no idea where that is, but I'm sure we drove through it this weekend. <laughs> right. And so born in Brazil, Indiana, from an early age. I mean, he's really young and he's like working in a grocery store. And this is in the late 1920s, early 1930s. And this is like the height of the union movement. Right. So, you know, this is where, like, this is where, like, people could hire union busters. Like, they would hire guards and stuff to go in. And if the union guys went on strike, they'd pay for a group of, like, paramilitary, basically, to beat the, oh, <laughs> beat their own yeah. workers up. So, you know, if you're wondering why unions versus corporations were important in the 20th century, um, it was because things would get violent often. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, even before I read this, if you asked me what the Teamsters were, because uh-huh. it's something we fear a lot. I, I believe I have a Teamsters union, like, lodge or something like that, two blocks from my house, right? Yeah. So, so it's like, oh, yeah, it's a Teamsters union. I had no idea what they actually did. Like the, okay. you know, the auto workers union, you know what they are. The plumbers union, you know who those guys are. But I'm like, the Teamsters, what the hell does that mean? Truck drivers. Ah, okay. Okay. So if you guys are wondering. The lifeblood of the country. I'm sure you've heard the term Teamsters and you might not know what they did before because maybe you're not a truck driver like I'm not. Um, even though I did do uh, my seventh grade uh, technical education paper for career day or whatever on truck driving. So I feel like I should have known a little bit more about it. Um, those are the Teamsters. And, you know, from an, right from the, uh, the beginning of that particular union, the Teamsters seem to have some involvement Uh-oh. with organized crime. Yeah. I mean, because, first of all, the Teamsters union is massive. By the time Jimmy Hoffa gets, he's not even a truck driver. But he's involved, like, be, because of where he was working, he became a leader in the union leadership, and he was representing labor, and he did it really well. Um, he was, like, inspirational to different union employees. And so in 1933, he's invited to become an organizer for the Detroit Teamsters. 
even though, I mean, I think he can drive or whatever. <laughs> Obviously, he can drive. But he does it, and he's successful at it. And by the time he becomes an organizer for the Teamsters, they have 75,000 members. So, you know, this is a major organization. And so he is working to consolidate the, like, all these local union groups into, like, a national organization. So it starts with 75,000 members. Within a couple of years, it's 170,000 members. By 1940, it's 420,000. And then by the time you get to the 1950s, you have over a million Teamsters wow. in the United States. So obviously the work that he's doing um, in like creating a strong union, he's super successful about it. Mm -hmm. But also to become successful and uh, in order to you know, make deals with all these local uh, local union organizations... He has to deal with the other people that they're working with. Uh-oh. And that's mobsters. And he's got to make accommodations and arrangements with all these gangsters um, because they're heavily involved in, you know, in the trucking business. And it's, it's all, all different kinds of things. When you, when you talk about the crime that could happen if you're involved with trucking, it's you know, stealing stuff and then having the insurance pay for it. Because let's say they say like, oh, yeah, well, if the, at 5 o'clock on Tuesday, your truck is going to be stopped. Because they, they know exactly what's in every truck. Right. And the route that it'll be on. Right. And, um, you know, instead of actually having to hold up the truck or, you know, rob them or something like that, they can, uh, like, cut out the middleman or at least cut out the dangerous, violent part of it mm -hmm. by arranging for the truck to be, quote, unquote, robbed. And things like that. Um, it's also um, with gangsters too. You know, one of the things they did is that so gangsters need a paycheck because they have to pay income tax, right? Yeah. Like a gangster needs a W-2 at the end of the year or otherwise <laughs> the feds start getting like, what's going on here? How's this guy right. on this place? And so um, unions are the perfect place to do that because, okay, well, this guy's... Uh, you know, oh, it's just he's one of our employees of the union or um, he's he's working for the trucking company. Well, what does he do? Well, he comes in and organizes things around the office. And stuff. <laughs> but that's the thing is so um, the union gives uh, a chance also for people whose main job is crime. Uh, get a get a W-2. And so uh, this is a different kind of um, corruption uh, that's in a lot of these local organizations. And so, I mean, I don't think Jimmy Hoffa ever has a choice. Like, he may not be a, a criminal himself or take bribes or kickbacks or things like that, but he has to make deals. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know. One interesting thing I learned when we were doing the research on this is that Jimmy Hoffa spent a lot of time in prison. Yeah. And I guess I didn't realize that since it's been like 27 years since I saw the movie with Jack Nicholson. <laughs> but you, you think that like once a guy goes to prison or once he's convicted of a crime that they're not going to, you know, make him the Teamsters president again. But it doesn't matter. He goes, he comes back from prison. He's still popular. Mm -hmm. So he's going through this. He, you know, turns the Teamsters union into one of the largest unions in the United States. And he's, you know, becomes super powerful in the 1950s. In fact, because he runs the pension fund for all these truckers, he's basically got hundreds of millions of dollars in the bank. And that then is the next um, kind of corruption that they get into because he's involved with the uh, the building of Las Vegas. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? The gangsters need some loans. And then uh, if he loans them some of the money to be working on the you know different buildings in Las Vegas, then they're going to use the union trucking companies to haul all the materials in the middle of the desert, you know, to build the entertainment capital. So right in the middle of the 1950s, when they start building up Las Vegas, there you have uh, Jimmy Hoffa controlling hundreds of millions of dollars in the pension account. And then he can use it as a bank to cut more deals, to make more money for the union. And at the same time, enriching guys like Bugsy Siegel and the different gangsters that uh, ended up creating Las Vegas. So, I mean, all this is super, um, there's nothing paranormal about it. <laughs> Maybe true crime, but this doesn't seem like, well, true crime, but nobody's murdered. Not yet, my friend. Not yet. <laughs> Wait for it. <laughs>
Well, I mean, the thing is, his the first major criminal investigations into the corruption of the Teamsters Union happened in 1957. And one of the guys who's a counsel on this subcommittee, it's called the McClellan Senate Hearings, and one of the guys who's a legal counsel on the subcommittee uh, working on the corruption of the union is Robert F. Kennedy. Mm, okay. And so they can't get any convictions or anything like that um, out of these original Senate hearings. And it's just, it's the first investigation. And Robert F. Kennedy, he's frustrated by the fact that they can't do much about it. He keeps getting stonewalled. Well, three years later, his brother is elected president of the United States and he becomes attorney general. All right, then. So what happens is, I mean, Robert F. Kennedy goes after organized crime in the U.S. And when you go after organized crime, you're going to go after one of their biggest, like one of the richest sources of money for organized crime, the Teamsters Union. And his squad of prosecutors and investigators um, was called the quote-unquote Get Hoffa Squad. <laughs> wow. Right. So you find that, I mean, Jimmy Hoffa is becoming targeted. I mean, not necessarily like targeted to be killed or whatever, Um but, uh, you know, targeted as an example of uh, corruption in the U.S., and that's exactly what they're going for. In fact, in uh, Robert F. Kennedy wrote a book called The Enemy Within, The McClellan Committee's Crusade Against Jimmy Hoffa and Corrupt Labor Unions, first published in 1960. So the Attorney General of the United States uh, writes a book called The Enemy Within, mentions Jimmy Hoffa by name in it, describes the Teamsters Union as the most powerful institution in the United States besides the U.S. government itself. <laughs> wow. And so, you know, obviously, Robert Kennedy is interested in taking these guys out, calling them corrupt labor unions. Um, even the, uh, the former president of the AFL-CIO, who the Teamsters were part of the AFL-CIO for a while, and Jimmy Hoffa was instrumental in, like, leaving the, AF the Teamsters, leaving that organization, he called... Uh, the, the president of the AFL-CIO, George Meany, called Jimmy Hoffa organized labor's number one enemy. Well, this is the president of the one of the largest uh, unions in the United States. And then the guy from the other largest union in the United States is calling him organized labor's number one enemy because he's bringing down so much um, heat on the corruption of the union. So, I mean, this is the thing Robert F. Kennedy is going for them. They're trying to uh, like arrest different organized crime figures. And this is where Jimmy Hoffa is thought of as maybe instrumental um, in the assassination of Robert Kennedy. I'm sorry, of, of John F. Kennedy. Mm -hmm. Because when Robert Kennedy was killed uh, eight years later, um, Jimmy Hoffa was already in prison. But, you know, it, it's interesting. So we talk about the movie coming out, The Irishman. And The Irishman is about... Um, this guy named Frank Sheeran, and uh, he's somebody that had worked, you know, had worked with Jimmy Hoffa a lot, and he was basically a uh, mob hitman, and his job is to, uh, you know, murder people for the mob. In in fact, uh, here was the um, here was the code phrase they used to use when you were saying like, okay, um, you're if you're a hitman or. I hear you're a hitman. The code word they used to use is, I heard you paint houses. Ah. So you meet somebody and you say, I heard you paint houses. They're like, oh, yes, I do. The problem is, is if you actually go into a house painter. <laughs> right. And they're like, yes, like, yes, I do. <laughs> I do paint houses. Really? <laughs> wow, I didn't oh, realize. That, I'm, I'm looking for a job. And then all of a sudden they get a gun in their hand. They got to shoot something. So, you know, uh, but he himself... So, like Frank Sheeran, the guy that uh, they're talking about, uh, that this, this Irishman movie's about, um, he mentions that they think that um, John F. Kennedy was assassinated by mobsters. And, and he says that it's because Robert Kennedy was going after the mob so much, they knew that if they killed John F. Kennedy, well, there would be a new attorney general appointed when the new, when, you know, when Lyndon Johnson took over. And so that original... Um, you know, a couple of different guys got together and you said there were more, sh you know, shooters than uh, Lee Harvey Oswald and, the, you know, the gunshots coming from the grassy knoll and stuff like that. Frank Sheeran had said, you know, that was that was our mob hitman guys <laughs> that uh, made sure that John F. Kennedy was killed. So, I mean, Jimmy Hoffa is implicated right away um, in the murder of John F. Kennedy when people talk about the mob. Um, 
because Robert Kennedy had it out uh, for JFK. So he's implicated uh, in, in the assassination. A couple of years later, Jimmy Hoffa does uh, go to trial for corruption charges, for wiretapping and fraud, and like they, the stuff that they could get him on. Um, they got him on these, uh, you know, smaller charges and couldn't get him in like super, uh, like stuff that would give him like 20 years or whatever. But there's an author named Dan Moldia, and he wrote a book called The Hoffa Wars. And he said that I was the first to allege that Hoffa, Carlos Mosello, and Santos Traficante had arranged and executed the president's murder. These are mob boss guys. He said, a year after the publication of my book, the U.S. House Select Committee on Assassinations concluded that Hoffa, Marcelo, and Traficante had the, quote, motives, means, and opportunity to commit this crime. Now, uh, also, um, Frank Sheeran, when he was saying that he was part of the Kennedy plot, and he admits this to a former prosecutor that had gained his trust at the end of his life. Um, so in the, in the Irishman, the movie is going to be from the uh, the viewpoint of Frank Sheeran and uh, the author, the prosecutor that, that Frank had admitted to, he says, Frank's role was unwitting. He was given rifles by Genovese capo, Tony Provenzano, and we'll talk more about Tony Provenzano okay. in a little bit, to deliver to deliver to an airstrip in Baltimore to another Genovese-made man. Genovese is a crime family. Frank had no idea why until Jack Ruby shot Oswald. Frank knew Ruby and knew that Hoffa knew Jack Ruby, but Frank asked no questions of anyone. So that's an interesting thing, that idea that, okay, well, if Jimmy Hoffa knew Frank, uh, Jack Ruby, Jack Ruby is the guy that shot Lee Harvey Oswald when he was being transported um, by the Texas police. So uh, if you want to get rid of your patsy or whatever, or the guy you set up, then that's a you know that's the perfect way to do it, and so you know that kind of thing. Um, also, one of the guys, one of the uh, one of the crime bosses, um, there he eventually went to Texarkana Federal Prison, and he had said that uh, he had told his medical attendants, like when he was in the prison hospital, that he had met in New York with a guy named Provenzano, and they would soon be celebrating because they were going to get that smiling mother effer. Kennedy oh in Dallas. Oh no! Uh, right, and so then you you know you've got this guy that the the uh, the House Committee is talking about this Carlos Marcelo, and he also said he implied implicated himself when he was sick and like talking like crazy to the prison hospital attendants um, that he was involved in, in the death. So um, this idea that Jimmy Hoffa was involved in JFK's death just makes things you know more complicated. Yeah. But all right. Jimmy Hoffa goes to prison in the late 1960s. They finally get him on, on these charges. Well, Richard Nixon pardons him. Ah, how convenient. Right? <laughs> so he's convicted in Chattanooga, Tennessee for the attempted bribery, uh, bribery of a grand juror. So he's trying to um, affect the outcome of a case, probably paying a guy off. And he's going to be using the Teamsters pension fund to pay that guy off. So that, now they can get him for improper use of the Teamsters pension fund. And then also they find these pension fund loans to different guys in organized crime. And then he gets all this prison sentence. So what happens? 1971, December 23rd. So Richard Nixon kind of coats this in a Christmas, um, in a Christmas setting. Number one, he does it when the news cycle is going to be completely slow during Christmas. Number two, it's like in the spirit of... You know, the spirit of the season, he commutes Jimmy Hoffa's sentence less than five years into the 13 years he's supposed to do at the time served. Wow. Following his release, Hoffa's awarded a Teamsters pension of $1.7 million, delivered in a one-time lump sum payment. So Hoffa gets out of prison, then gets his entire lump sum pension of $1.7 million. What happens in 1972? The Teamsters Union endorses Richard Nixon for president instead of George McGovern. Now, <laughs> we don't talk about politics on this show very often, but unions do not usually support Republican candidates. 
So, uh, you know, this idea that all of a sudden Jimmy Hoffa is left out of prison, he gets the Teamsters pension, and the, the Teamsters union supports a Republican candidate in 1972. Well, all right then. That, that's not suspicious at all. <laughs> right. So, but the one thing is that uh, Nixon pardoned him, but he said uh, there was a condition imposed on the release. And the release said you cannot engage in union activities until March 1980. Like, so Nixon gave Hoffa, like, a special condition that he couldn't just go back to his former life. And because of presidential pardons, you can basically do that. That's, mm. That seems like a weird executive power to me. <laughs> yeah, it does. Like, doesn't that seem like a kingly power? It does. Very to be much. able to just be like, they can pardon whoever they want. I can override whatever justice has occurred here. <laughs> right. Like, he, right, the president can override, like, the rest of the judicial system. Right. I never even thought about that, like presidential pardons. Like, no, a jury of his peers put him in prison for several years, and you're, like, the president's just like, nah, he's going to help me get elected in 1972. Undo. Undo. Um, right. <laughs> right. That's crazy. So what happens is, okay, Jimmy Hoffa, he then wants to start getting involved uh, in the Teamsters again, and he's kind of coming into it sideways. He's... Um, you know, he is legally saying that Richard Nixon didn't have the constitutional right to put a special condition on his release, and he's having lawyers doing it. And then he starts trying to get involved in the Teamsters again. And this is starting to be in like 1974. He's interested in getting his old job back, which is president of the Teamsters. But he does it at the local level to, to start going out. Um, then he's working on an autobiography. He's basically, now that he's out of prison, he's trying to get some of his old power and money back. And in order to do that, he had to meet different mafia members to kind of get some deals and cut some deals. But they weren't crazy about bringing Jimmy Hoffa back to the forefront. He, I mean, he had taken a lot of heat. He had gone to prison. He is a lightning rod for corruption charges. And so... They're not going to be on his team when he come, wants to come back as president. So um, in 1975, uh, Hoffa asks this guy named Tony Provenzano, who we just talked about as the guy that told Frank Sheeran to give this other guy guns uh, in, like 19, in 1963, right before JFK was assassinated. He asks him for help in supporting his return to power. And Provenzano is completely opposed to it. In fact, he threatens Hoffa and says he's going to pull out his guts and kidnap his granddaughters. That's how classy wow, he got to kind of man, is. Right. And so the next thing that happens is because Provenzano says that stuff uh, and Hoffa wants to get back into power, he starts cooperating a little bit with investigations against some of these mafia figures who will not support him into his uh, search for power again back in, in the Teamsters. Another guy, uh, another Detroit Mafia guy that he gets involved with is a guy named Anthony Giacoloni. Oh, man, I love these names. First of all, I feel like I'm saying an Italian cheese every time. Anthony Provenzano, mm. Anthony Giacoloni. Um, I really, I feel like I'm hanging out in an episode of Sopranos. But um, Anthony Giacoloni, he's trying uh, to make peace between Jimmy Hoffa and this Provenzano guy. And so he sets up a variety of meetings in order to get them together to try and smooth things out because anytime there's any kind of uh, war or battle between criminal figures, the police start getting interested. So there's two guys, Anthony Provenzano, Anthony Giacoloni. July 30th, 1975, Jimmy Hoffa is going to a meeting at 2 p.m. at a place called the Maccus Red Fox Restaurant. And it's uh, in Bloomfield Township which is the suburb of Detroit. Hoffa knows the Red Fox well because it was the site of the, the wedding reception for his son. So he's been there. His office calendar just writes, TG, 2 p.m., Red Fox. That's the meeting. Hmm. And so he goes, he uh, calls his wife from a payphone um, right by the Red Fox, and he said, where the hell is Tony Giacoloni? I'm being stood up. So... At 2.15, oh, there's boy. nobody there. His wife, his wife tells him that nobody called. He says, I'll be home at 4 o'clock. Then there's witnesses that see him standing by his car, pacing the parking lot. 
Two men see him emerge from the Red Fox after the lunch. They recognize him. They stop to chat with him briefly. They shake his hands. Then we get 3.27 p.m., an hour and a half after the meeting's supposed to start. Um, he calls one of his friends and says that, once again, Gia Coloni was late. He, he goes like this. That dirty son of a bitch, Tony Jock, set this meeting up, and he's an hour and a half late. Oh. His friend tells him to calm down, stop by his office on the way home, um, and that's the last time anybody talked to him. Hmm. All right. Uh, the next day, Hoffa's wife, who hadn't heard from him since 2.15, the day before, at 7 a.m., she calls her son and daughter by telephone and says, your dad's not home. And the kids are about to come over. Interestingly enough, no, so his daughter, who now is a judge, she's like a, you know, she works as a labor judge in Missouri. Mm-hmm. Um, so she gets a call from her mother at 7.30 a.m. and says, your father didn't come home last night. This is from the Washington Post, June 17th, of 1991. They have an interview with both of Hoffa's children. And she says that uh, as she's in the plane on the way back home to Detroit, she closes her eyes and she sees a vision of him slumped over. She sees him from the back. He had on a black short sleeve polo shirt. She said she couldn't see blood or holes, just saw her father slumped over. She says, I saw it later in the paper, the description of what he was wearing. It was a black short sleeve polo shirt. No one told me. There was no way I could have heard it at a time. So that's a little interesting that she's got a vision of her father. <sighs> and she, she, in fact, went and, like, now that she's a judge and everything, she's done Freedom of Information Act requests to try to get more information about eyewitnesses oh, and things sure. that might have seen a dad. And she says, you know, they get responses that the FBI is still working this case and there's an, indeed an ongoing investigation. Now, this is 1991, so this is 16 years after he disappeared. And, uh, you know, they're, they're not giving her access to those files because it, it's, they're not subject to Freedom of Information Act mm-hmm. requests because the investigation is still ongoing. So that, that drives her crazy. Yeah, understandably. Um, and, and funny enough, Jimmy Hoffa's son is the president of the Teamsters now. Huh. Right? They all followed so, his lead, huh? Yeah, the family business. Um, <laughs> he's James Hoffa Jr. So like, it's like Jimmy Hoffa never left. Right. But that's the thing. Okay. So she has that um, strange vision. Interestingly enough, um, just a, a couple of days later, August 2nd, a source close to James Hoffa, R. Hoffa's family said today that members of the family and the police had been told the names of two men who Mr. Hoffa was supposed to have met, along with Anthony Giacalone. Uh, last Wednesday, the day disappeared. The source said that the names had come from the employee of a Hoffa friend who recalled them after a psychologist hired by the Hoffa family had put them under hypnosis. So when they're you know searching for him, uh, like right away when people say they can't remember stuff, they're like, you know what? We're going we're gonna to send you to hypnosis. Mm. And so that's where they get the name of uh, Mr. Provenzano. And this, this is in the New York Times, August 3rd, 1975. And so they go in there and then the police department um, is coming in. They're saying like, okay, well, we've been asked to see if we can talk to Mr. Provenzano. It can possibly give us any information. And... Already, uh, a week after his death, his daughter, Barbara Crancer, she says that uh, the police have told her that they thought, they believed that um, some mafia guys might have taken him hostage, luring, like they, they lured him to their car in the pretense of talking mm-hmm. to Mr. Giacalone, and then they still have him. So this is just a week. So they don't necessarily say he's dead yet. But this is, you know, absolutely national news. And... Uh, in this newspaper, that week of, he's disappeared. The New York Times is saying that uh, he was called the big man in the Detroit Mafia. So Anthony Giacalone, um, when they were doing an investigation in 1963 by the police, the police called him the big man oh, in the boy. Detroit Mafia. But they also said that they were supposedly friendly. So, okay, well, what could have happened? Well, here's what you're going to see in the Irish. Okay. Because Frank Sheeran's daughter, I mean, she even said, she's like, in 2011, she's like, my father killed Jimmy Hoffa. And he was upset about it because they were friends. Oh, man. For a long time. Who needs enemies when you have friends like that? (laughs) Right. But he couldn't turn down the other mafia bosses that said, like, look, you got to take this guy out. Wow. So, you know, when he went out and, and told the story, 
He said that uh, you know Frank got him in the car, took him to a local house, and then shot him twice in the back. Two guys were waiting in the house, and then grabbed him, grabbed the body, put it in a body bag, and then Frank Sheeran doesn't know where they took him after that. So in 2018, uh, a guy was working on. Uh, a book and trying to get in and discover some things like what if Frank Sheeran's story was true. And here's an interesting thing they do. They go into the house that Frank said it was at and they get the new owners to let them pull up the floorboards to where Frank Uh said they shot him. And they did find blood there. Like underneath the floor, because the new owners bought the place in 1989 um, the old owner in 1975 was this 80-year-old woman whose own family said she almost never was at the house. She had bought a different house that she wanted to go to, so she was mostly at this house at the time. And so they like, if she wasn't home or she wasn't home for weeks at a time, it wouldn't have been unusual. So that's an you know that's an interesting thing that okay, the family confirmed that 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 particular house was probably empty. It doesn't get bought then until 1989. The new owners immediately put like new floorboards over it and stuff. And then when they go into the old floorboards, they do find some blood stains on the floor. Now, there's no, you don't have Jimmy Hoffa's DNA because he's gone. Right. And people, you know, they did find like pieces of Jimmy Hoffa's hair that was saved in evidence um, from around his house and stuff. But they weren't able to get an actual DNA sample from, you know, Mm. from the hair or anything. But, uh, you know, the people who were working on the book for the Irishman do believe, uh, you know, Frank's claim that he killed Jimmy Hoffa in a house in Detroit in the summer of 1975. So that's one investigation into it. And that's, that's one place where people think Jimmy Hoffa went. The thing is... He's been a subject of all kinds of theories since then. Um, there was one theory that uh, Jimmy Hoffa ended up, uh, he was murdered in Detroit, but then the mafia took him because they were building like giant stadium at the time. Hmm. And so that they, uh, they like dropped him into the concrete mix or whatever, <laughs> his body into the concrete mix. And that Jimmy Hoffa was really inside the walls of giant stadium. Okay, that would be weird. <laughs> yeah. But that was disproven though. Because they um there was like an episode of Mythbusters where they went there and they tried to they used the ground penetrating radar and they didn't find any remains and then I guess the stadium got knocked down and they during that process they didn't find anything either so okay <laughs> okay so he's definitely not then uh, the, the Mythbusters found it I trust him yeah you gotta because <laughs> science uh, <laughs> we've got a psychic uh, that says that she saw what happened to Jimmy Hall oh okay. So she says, for some reason, the keeper of the Akashic Records has given some of us the gift of getting a glimpse into that file, and he tells us where people's bodies are buried and who put them there. He then asks us to write about it to prove that he's very much alive in the spirit world and has this record of life trained on planet Earth and will not get away with anything. And he will deal with us one by one as we finish our life here on Earth and join him in the great beyond. So this particular psychic, she's writing this on November 22nd, 2007. She says, I saw Jimmy Hoffa come out of the VIP lounge at Detroit Metro Airport and walk across the parking lot. I then saw a car with three men in it drive up alongside Hoffa and drag him into the car and drive away. The car went onto the expressway and drove to many homes, and Hoffa at the time seemed to be going along with them as they tried to talk to him into doing something, and I guess, at that time, he thought they had just done an intervention to talk to him. Whatever they were trying to get him to agree to didn't work, and the next thing I saw was a cottage at the lake, and Hoffa was there with another man. Hoffa was then stripped down to his shorts and shot. The next thing I saw was a car parked in a country area, and many men were there with shovels, and they took the a tarpaulin-wrapped body out of the trunk and carried it to a clump of trees where they dug a grave and buried him. On the way to the burying spot, I looked to my right, and I saw an old abandoned amusement park, and I heard the words, Orion and Crystal Lake. Orion and Crystal Lake, of course, are in the state of Michigan. Mm. After I began sending the story out in the 80s, which always disappeared without a trace, I began to get mafia signals and publications, and the words Lake Orient and Crystal Lake were mentioned, and this is how the mafia sends people uh, signals to people in the press to back off. 
I've been told by my source in the spirit world that Hoffa's body was buried in the housing division near Crystal Lake, and it's doubtful it will ever be found. Over the years, many people have come forward and said they know where Hoffa's body is buried, and there have been many searches, and the earth has been dung up on farms in many places, but the body has never been found. So, that's what this specific psychic had to say. She came up with that in the 80s, and I guess uh, she sent stuff to newspapers, and in 2007, eventually decided to let us all know on the internet where she <laughs> believes Jimmy Hoffa was. Okay, that's good to know. All right, August 6, 1977. You get a guy named Tom Dawson. Uh, he's a used car salesman. He's 63 years old. He's retired. Lives in a trailer near Pelham in Mitchell County, Georgia. Here's what he told to the press. 10.30 a.m., he walks outside with his two dogs, as he used to do in his days off. He stops at the home of Jimmy and Linda Colby, playing with their baby, then proceeds towards a fishing pond located behind some pines. To get there, he crosses a pasture of approximately 40 cows and... Uh, he wants to see if it's going to be nice to fish later in the day. As he's crossing the pasture, there's a spacecraft, a flying saucer, coming suddenly like a flash between the trees that hovers one meter above the ground right in front of him. He said it was a 40 to 50 feet in diameter, 12 to 14 top, had a dome at the top and a row of portholes around. It did not make any noise and changed colors quickly. Now, this, to me, is a classic flying saucer. Yeah, right. sure sounds like it's it. It's got the little... Right, it sounds like the guys from The Simpsons are going to be in the, in the top, like, you know, the <laughs> right. aliens in The Simpsons going to be in there. But he said as the craft was there, he was paralyzed, and he noticed that his dogs and the cows of the pasture were also frozen, quote-unquote. A trap door emerges. Uh, five or seven beings come out. A couple of males, a couple of females, pale skin, white like snow. He says white like sacks of flour. Pointed ears like Mr. Spock. Pointed noses turned upwards and no neck. Mm-hmm. One of the men and one of the women were completely naked and had completely hairless bodies. So I was like looking at Ken and Barbie. <laughs> the other three beings had beautiful two-piece tight-fitted suits made of gleaming material with changing bluish-green hues. The two sexes dressed the same uh, and they had silky shoes with toes directed upwards like a little elf shoe or something. Yeah. The first one comes out. Dawson thinks that's the chief. And uh, like he takes a step downwards carefully as if making sure that the ground is firm. He beckons the others to follow him. And um, they go, they approach him cautiously. The chief places a skull cap device on his head. The device had dials and lights and wires connected to it. He said like a hula hoop with a dial. They made his trousers fall and lifted his shirt for the examination. Oh boy. Passing the hoop above Uh his body and around his waist, attaching small devices like suction cups on various parts of his body, touching and poking him and reading the dials. Toward the end of this examination, a loud human voice came from the inside of the saucer, shouting three or four times, I am Jimmy Hoffa. Okay. A fourth repetition was interrupted as if somebody had muted the shouting with a hand and the voice was not heard anymore. Okay. So he's sitting there. They're examining him. There's this hula hoop device with dials on it going up and around his body. And then from inside the saucer, he hears three or four times, I am Jimmy Hoffa. I am Jimmy Hoffa. I am Jimmy Hoffa. (laughs) Okay. That's his story. Um, The examination finishes. The uh, aliens move like 10 feet away from him. They start talking in high-pitched and shrieking voices. He said he didn't understand the language, but thinks that he heard one of them say Jupiter. He notices that two of the men watch him occasionally and suspect that they're talking about him. Uh, He thinks maybe they're wondering if they should abduct him. So then the chief passes his palm through his chest to make a goodbye sign. Hmm. Dawson says they gathered, quote-unquote, leaves and stuff. And uh, he like they half floated into the trap door of the saucer, closed it, and took off. He said the saucer went up slowly up to about 25 meters of altitude and then flew away in a blink of an eye. Then all of a sudden, he wasn't paralyzed anymore. So then he's got to pull his pants up. Oh, boy. Uh, and then he runs 300 yards to his trailer. Um, and then, you know, he says, like, spaceship is the only word he can get out of his mouth. He can't speak. <laughs> so then finally, you know, he's talked to his neighbors, the Colbys. She wipes his face with a wet rag, um, and then she takes him to the hospital. And the doctor said that he'd been, he was uh, like mentally and physically shaken. They gave him a pill to calm him down and let him out later. So, I mean, his neighbor said that he was respected in the community, hardworking, nice, a gentleman who adored his daughter and wasn't known as a prankster or anything like that. 
um, ufologists. People came over and said they were MUFOC members. So that's probably like a 1970s organization, maybe a precursor to MUFON. They come in. They say they're from Mason County, Georgia. They take ground samples and radiation measurements. But the next-door neighbor woman, she's like, I don't think they look like Georgians to me. She said they had olive-colored skin and a foreign glance, which I guess means they might have looked foreign uh, or non, I guess, Caucasian. But people have speculated that they were visited by the men in black after the encounter. Um, The big thing was, is the Jimmy Hoffa part seemed to get all the skeptics. Um, That's what kind of... Yeah. (laughs) You know? Um, He didn't go to the police, but the chief chief of the police uh, at the time, even 30 years later, remembers... Uh, the story. He's like, oh, yeah, no, I remember that Dawson said that. And, you know, Dawson even said he didn't expect people to believe him, saying he wouldn't believe it if it didn't happen to him. He said he hadn't been crazy, hadn't been drinking, and he'd never had anything like that before or after. So the thing is, Jimmy Hoffa might not be actually uh, in either the Giants Stadium or he might not be uh, somewhere under the ground in Michigan. He might be out in the stars. Yeah, because that would explain why he's never been found. I mean, (laughs) it's one possible explanation. Right. Where'd he go? What happened to him? I think we know what happened to him. (laughs) But there have been a lot of leads to various people who think they know where he is and he's never, you know, they follow up on all of them and he's yet to be found. So, you know, I think the probably the the one that I believe probably is. Um, the one we're going to see in this movie, The Irishman, coming out, Frank Sheeran yeah. doing it at the behest of these other mob organizers. You know, I did not realize that you could be like in charge of a union, an organization of a million people in the U.S., be constantly under investigation and still be in such a, you know, a position of power um, yeah. like Jimmy Hoffa was. And, you know, his daughter, um, she doesn't think of him as a criminal. You know, she's like, he was a magical dad. He was a wonderful man. She's like, he was gone a lot because he was working. But um, she said, when he was with you, he really was with you. And she said that, you know, I'm sure even people like George Bush aren't proud of every kind of person that they uh, have had to hang out with in their lives. Mm -hmm. And that her father was the same. All right. So we don't know what's going to happen in Jimmy Hoffa, but it's going to be fun to see uh, Al Pacino play him. And the other thing, too, is in the movie, what's interesting is they're using all the de-aging technology. Oh, wow. That's wild. You know, I really first saw the good, the the first de-aging technology is, did you remember Tron Legacy? Did you see the the Tron sequel? No, I didn't see it. It's not great, but it's not bad. Um, But it's it's got uh, Jeff Bridges as a young man. It's got Jeff Bridges as an old man and Jeff Bridges as a young man. And so it's really pretty cool. That was the first time I saw the de-aging technology. And that was maybe, you know, eight or nine years ago. And that was, and, and since then, uh, the de-aging technology has been used all the time. In Captain Marvel that came out earlier this year, they de-aged Samuel Jackson to how he looked in the 1990s. Oh, my gosh. Um, they do it with uh, Michael, uh, oh, Michael Douglas. Yeah, Kirk Douglas' son. They do it with Michael Douglas in like Ant-Man and the Wasp to be like here's how Michael Douglas would look like in the 1970s (laughs) and now they're doing that with Al Pacino and Joe Pesci and Robert De Niro as we get the story from Jimmy Hoffa and Frank Sheeran from you know the 1940s and 50s all the way up to the 1970s so I think that's going to be a lot of fun and I just hope they get to show the you know the encounter that Dawson had with the UFOs and we get to hear Al Pacino because what would he be like like I am Jimmy Hoffa. I am Jimmy Hoffa. I am Jimmy. Oh, <laughs> you know, whatever. I'm a chicken. Ho- you know, I, it's hard to think of Al Pacino now when he talks because I always think of him from Sen of a Woman or whatever, where he just sounds like Foghorn Leghorn the entire movie. <laughs> whenever, whenever I oh. picture him talking, I'm like, ah, I'm a chicken hawk. Anyway. <laughs> All right. So we'll see what happens with the mystery of Jimmy Hoffa. And um, that's the inspiration for this week's song. That disappeared.
say your name There's no answer on the way I forget you were erased Because you were here one day And it's almost like I imagined It's a mystery How you disappeared from my history Uh-oh, it's like you never existed Uh-oh, it's like you never existed Exit reality To only remain in my memory Uh-oh, it's like you never existed Uh-oh, it's like you never existed Just a fantasy A phantom limb that itches me Just a missing piece of meat Another sailor lost at sea for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode. And before we wrap it up completely, I'd like to extend some gratitude to the See You on the Other Side Patreon community. If you'd like to be a member of our Patreon community, you can do that by visiting othersidepodcast.com slash donate. And you can join us for as little as just a couple bucks a month. Now, we do have one member who is at a level where he gets a shout out every single episode, and that is the awesome Dr. Ned. So Dr. Ned, thank you so much for being such an amazing supporter of See You on the Other Side and Sunspot. Again, thank you for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful, weird week. First of all, I feel like I'm saying an Italian cheese every time. Anthony Provenzano, Anthony Giacalone. Um, I really, I feel like I'm hanging out in an episode of Sopranos.